listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program, news for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, July 2nd, 2023 edition of Labor Express. Tonight, we bring you a tale of two strikes. Well, actually, one ongoing strike, which might be getting uh, much bigger very soon, and a strike that might be in a month's time. On our last episode, I raised the question of whether the summer fall of 2023 might see an historic nationwide strike wave. Let's leave out the whole issue of a definition of a strike wave. We'll, we'll, we'll address that issue another time. But I highlighted four cases in particular. We talked about the increasing likelihood of a UAW strike at the big three automakers in September. I aired some audio regarding the state of contract negotiations with the UAW on that program. I also mentioned that the ILWU has a tentative agreement with the Pacific Maritime Association, uh, but they are voting uh, that agreement either up or down over the coming months. So a strike is still possible at the West Coast ports. I talked about the ongoing WGA strike, the Writers Guild of America, and I briefly mentioned the Teamsters at UPS who had voted by 97% in favor of striking if necessary on August 1st. Well, tonight, as promised, I have much more to present to you about the increasingly likely strike at UPS by the Teamsters, which, if it happens, will be the largest strike in a very long time. We'll hear from Teamsters who are also active with TDU, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, about why they are likely to strike, the state of contract negotiations, preparations for the strike, and how you can get involved. We'll also get an update on the WGA Writers Guild of America strike. The writers uh, were close to being joined by the actors this weekend, but SAG-AFTRA agreed at the last minute on Friday to extend negotiations to uh, the uh, 12th of July. So even though uh, their contract expired Saturday, they are still uh, not striking Uh, But that Hollywood strike might get much bigger in just less than two weeks if they decide to go on strike. But before we get to all that, we have a public service announcement for Chicago and Cook County low-wage workers via our friends at Arise Chicago Workers Center. Check your check. That's the message from uh, Tony Preckwinkle, Cook County Board President, and Arise. They held a joint press conference on Friday, given that the minimum wage in both Chicago and Cook County increased yesterday, July 1st. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. I want to thank you for joining us as we share more news about the minimum wage increases taking effect tomorrow, July 1st, in Cook County and Chicago. Before we get started, I'd like to recognize the folks who've joined us. Sisavon Baker, Cook County Department of Human Rights and Ethics Director. Commissioner Ken Meyer, an old friend from my days at the city. City of Chicago Department of Business Affairs and Consumer Protection. Laura Garza, Arise Worker, Center Director. Martina Sanchez, Arise Chicago member. Arise Chicago is a great organization that organizes our immigrant communities and the undocumented in the workplace. Thank you all for joining us as we get the minimum wage message out to our residents in Cook County and Chicago. Shortly, Director Baker and Commissioner Meyer will share more information regarding wage increases within the relevant jurisdictions. Let's begin on the county side. As I said, effective tomorrow, July 1st, the county minimum wage will increase to $13.70. That's $13.70 for non-tipped workers and $8 for tipped employees in hospitality. To ensure this increase is reflected in folks' paychecks, Cook County's Commission on Human Rights works diligently to ensure employees are paid the correct wages. Our commission also investigates complaints 
of any potential violations of the minimum wage ordinance. Over the past year, the Commission has supported collaboration with the Department of Public Health and Arise Chicago to pursue a broader outreach strategy. We want to make sure our residents understand our labor laws and that we move towards data and industry-informed industry enforcement strategies. We know that upholding a minimum wage plays a significant role in equity in that income, paid sick time, and job security impact, impact our health, health risks, and ability to work. It shouldn't come as a surprise that wages and providing sick time to results, results in employees having fewer illnesses. Enforcement of the minimum wage is just one of the integral ways that Cook County is pri prioritizing quality of life for all of our residents. I encourage employees to check your next check to ensure that you are paid the updated minimum wage starting on July 1st. And I encourage all employers to contact the Department of Human Rights with any questions or concerns. Good morning, my name is Laura Gunnison. I'm the Worker Center Director at Arise Chicago. At Arise, we educate workers on their rights and how to defend them. Today, we're here reminding workers to check your check to make sure you are paid at least the minimum wage. Worker pay is a racial justice issue, a gender justice issue, and a healthy and a health equity issue. We're so glad to be here today with the Cook County Commission of Human Rights and the Chicago Office of Labor Standards, the enforcement offices charged with protecting workers' rights to lift up that message. You just heard the update from Chicago and Cook County minimum wage rates that go into effect tomorrow. I want to remind workers who work in the suburbs that are not included in the, in the county minimum wage, who work outside Cook County, that the minimum wage effective tomorrow, July 1st, is $13 an hour. And for if you receive tips, it's $7.80 an hour. You can also, uh, also see the overtime rates here on these charts. Remember, if you receive tips at the end of, the, of your work week, your hourly rate must at least add up to $13 an hour. If it doesn't, your employer has to make up the difference. These, the same goes for the city and the county. You have to at least, at least the full minimum wage after the tips, or your employer must make up the difference. Again, your minimum wage has to equal to what it currently is, and if those tips don't equal to that, make sure that you are checking and talking to your employers about that. We know that the minimum wage can be confusing because of all these different rates. That is why it's important to check with your employer and to check your check. One easy way to make sure your employer knows the proper <coughs> minimum wage for whenever you work is to make sure that they have the legally required minimum wage notice in all the workplace, in all the workplace rights posted at your job. All employers, whether in Chicago, Cook County suburbs, or anywhere in Illinois, are required to post a notice of the current minimum wage. So look for that poster in your break room or someplace easily available for all workers and make sure to check that date. Employers need a poster that is up as of July of 2023. If you are not being paid the correct minimum wage, you can file a complaint with the Office of Labor Standards, Cook County Commission on Human Rights, or the Illinois Department of Labor, depending on where you work. And you can always contact the Rice Chicago with any questions. And remember, the minimum, the minimum wage is just the minimum. You could organize your work sites to make more money and to organize around worker issues that are affecting you. Remember, that is the key to increasing the wages at your workplace and also to organize the work around worker issues. 
For more details on the minimum wage increases in Chicago and Cook County, which is a little complex, you might want to check and see exactly how that's going to work for you. Check the links up at our Facebook page at laborexpress.org. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for working people by working people. The strike by the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, which represents writers in the film and TV industry, entered its third month on Saturday. The actors, members of SAG-AFTRA, were set to join the writers on the picket lines yesterday, but an 11th hour move by union leadership to extend the contract negotiations for another 12 days have put that actor strike on hold for now. The WGA strike has already led many programs, especially the late night shows, to go on hiatus and has paused production on many others. If the actors strike as well, the entertainment industry will practically grind to a halt. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, of which Labor Express Radio is a proud member, held a conversation with WGA strike captain Theo Travers last Tuesday. Theo gave an update on the strike and the issues involved, including the role of AI, artificial intelligence, in displacing and transforming work. The first voice you'll hear from in this segment is that of Theo's, but you'll also hear from network organizer Harold Phillips, who hosted the call, as well as the producers of several of our fellow network members, including old friend of Labor Express, Steve Zeltzer of Workweek Radio, towards the end of this segment. My name is Theo Travers. I'm a writer and producer for shows like Billions, uh, Power on Stars, Health of Lies on Showtime as well. I'm from Chicago by way of Georgia son of educators. My mother's a teacher. My father's a mechanic. I started out working as an assistant to busy production execs and have literally done every job up into my most recent role as showrunner for an upcoming AMC crime thriller called Parish, which was shot in New Orleans. I had the pleasure of living and working there for a number of months. And that show is slated to premiere sometime early next year, starring Giancarlo Esposito of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul fame. That is fantastic, Theo. Obviously, like we were talking about, the writers are on strike, and we're in the ninth week of that strike. Tell us where we're at in that arc. Obviously, there's been a lot of attention, there's been a lot of support, but nine weeks on strike, that can be kind of wearing, right? Yeah. It's definitely a marathon, not a sprint. The last time writers went on strike was 15 years ago in 2007. That strike went for a record number of 100 days, I believe. Previous to that, the strike of the late 80s also went for about 20 to 22 weeks. So, I, you know, not to say that we were anticipating it, you know, we were hoping to avoid a strike, obviously, but I do believe our studio partners, they have a different approach to how negotiations work. They've essentially, as of May 1st, they walked away from the table. We're here uh, and we're ready to begin talk when they are. And it's not as if they don't see us because we're outside the studio gates every right. single day. This is Gene Lance. Workers Beat Extra is my program, as my podcast, and I do this from Dallas, Texas. My question has to do with artificial intelligence. I wonder if there's any currents in the discussion, either from you or from management, that just says that AI is coming, there's nothing anybody can do about it, and it's going to affect our jobs one way or the other. The WGA's proposal to regulate the use of material produced by AI or similar technologies really assures that the companies can't use AI 
to undermine writers' working standards, including compensation, residuals, separated rights, credits. But AI can't be used as source material to create any, any material covered by our MBA, the minimum basic agreement that we work with on the studios. To rewrite any of our work or AI-generated text cannot be considered in determining writing credits. Our proposal is that writers may not be assigned AI-generated material to adapt the way one might a book or a comic book series, nor may AI software-generated cover literary material. Um, you know, in the same way that a studio may point to a Wikipedia article or research material and ask a writer to refer to it, they can make the writer aware of AI-generated content. But like all research material, AI has no role in guild-covered work, nor the chain of title of intellectual property. Even if you just look at the difference between AI-generated work from this month to this time last year, the technology is growing exponentially, and it absolutely is an existential threat to, to all of us. At this point, the studios have not even acknowledged our concern about AI, and we're looking to do everything that we can to, I think, protect workers, but, but to also acknowledge the reality that like AI will be in our lives. And so there's a question of how can we use it where it benefits us and protect it from harming us. This is Patrick Dixon. I'm with the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, and I'm in Northern Virginia. Pleased to talk to you. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, the sort of scope of the union and what that means for the strike. The vast majority of the membership, and there's 11,000, more than 11,000 members of WGA, vast majority of us are featured television writers. At this point, what you've heard a lot about in our negotiations are talks about residuals and writers' rooms. Primarily, that's been the leading topic of the conversation because it turns out that because of the expansion of streaming, that really nearly 75% of the membership has a television project of some sort scripted. Even the feature writers are working in television. But the Guild does also include comedy variety and late night and special events like the Tonys you may have seen this year. They had to throw out the script because of the current labor action. So those are the areas that we've seen the sort of soonest change in what's being uploaded, what's coming out. Correct. We're looking to establish new minimum payments. We're looking to protect the number of writers who are hired for projects. Uh, we're trying to do look at spam protection, certainly limit the amount of weeks in which payment is paid to any particular writer for a project. We're looking at weekly rate compensation for a new advent that's happened, it's called a mini room, which is exactly what it sounds like, which is it's a smaller group of writers working on developing a show before it gets officially ordered to series. I think that the studios have sort of abused this system because with the mini room, it allows the studio to pay writers less than they would for a normal room. But increasingly, they've asked writers to do the same amount of work but just in the half amount of time and for less money. And over a longer period of time, that's unsustainable. You've got it now where because of the popularity of these rooms, just the stability for working writers has crumbled to the point where some writers 
because of the instability, can't even afford or get rent in the cities where they have to live in order to do the work because they cut writers from working 10 months out of the year to 10 weeks at a time. And I think in a lot of ways, this question of jurisdiction of what the WGA covers and what it doesn't cover, your response points out the fact that even though this seems like a really niche sort of job writing for television and for movies, y'all are still facing the same struggles that workers across the board are facing. You're facing being asked to do more without compensation that raises as a result. You're asked to um, have a, a smaller and smaller workforce. You're not able to live in the cities that you work in. People might think this is a quote unquote Hollywood writer's strike, but in point of fact, this is stuff workers are facing all across the country. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I feel like I try to convey to my friends and family members who don't work in entertainment, because sometimes when you get mired in the legalese, those very specific granular things in the contract, one's eyes may glaze over or may have a hard time sympathizing for people who work as television writers, which is a very, it's such an enormous privilege to be able to do this. But I think that the thing that we're talking about is very much something that everybody who works for a large company is dealing with, where the folks in the C-suite are looking at Wall Street and making gains and doing everything in their power to cut costs in order to, to please their shareholders. But I do think that they're, they're talking out of two sides of their mouths, right? Because on one hand, they're telling their shareholders, hey, we're doing great. Everything is good. We're turning the ship around. And then they're coming to us and saying, oh, we don't have the money to pay you what we used to pay you. So now we're paying less. And it's like, well, which is, I mean, either you're spending record amount of money and making record profit or you're hemorrhaging, but it can't be both. And so I think that we're smart enough to see it because they're publicly owned companies. We see exactly what's on their books. And at the end of the day, the negotiation, like all negotiations, are ultimately about security, financial being primary. And yeah, I think that what we're asking for in this contract, and I keep reiterating, is like it all boils down to we're asking for what amounts to less than 2% of their annual profits. Bingo. I am with the Hartman Labor Forum in Kansas City. Hi, pleasure to meet you. Yeah, pleasure to meet you too, Theo. Tell me, like, how many people work on a script? How much you get paid? Do you get benefits? Like, what in what is negotiated that is that helps you sustain your life? The minimum basic agreement that we're looking to renegotiate at the moment actually lays out all the minimums that everybody, you know, which is the floor for what a writer would get compensated for episodic television, it, it can get mired in the weeds a little bit because, for example, compensation for a half-hour show like The Office is different than, you know, a one-hour drama like um, Homeland. But, you know, what we're fighting for here, the minimums are the bread and butter of what our contracts are, They're the protections that are put in place that basically the 350 
companies, studios, producers that are all signatory to the AMTPT, they have to, at minimum, provide us compensation, payment to our pension and health fund residuals, which are increasingly becoming a dying breed. Residuals were the payments that we would get when in television, when a show would get sold into syndication. The best way of explaining that is like if you're watching a rerun of Friends on a television show, like writers would receive a small check for what the studio gets paid when a show is sold in the syndication. But what happens with streaming on platforms like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, they own the content and they don't have to sell it in the syndication because they're global platforms. In fact, they can choose arbitrarily to take it off the air if they want. It's shifted the pay structure for television writers. For example, to make it personal, right now, I've been out of work for more than eight weeks and I receive what the guild, they send residuals in a green envelope. And so <laughs> whatever one, a writer receives a green envelope, that means there's money in the mail. But I receive residuals for shows that I've worked on in the last 10 years. Whereas that's going away. If you work for a streamer, you don't receive residuals. And so the money that I'm receiving right now is helping me hold over during this time when I'm not working. Okay, but what about shows that they don't produce? Because there's a lot of movies, for instance, that they buy from studios and show on platforms like Netflix. Do you get residuals for those? No, because features, features is a little bit different business model. Features tend to make their, in addition to getting the payments that they receive up front, sometimes they have a percentage of profits for box office. So that's another way in which writers have, their pay has been scaled down. I think we're kind of missing the boat here because this is not just about the writers and their struggle. This is about how capitalism is structured with AI. And Reed Hastings on Netflix has been involved in education and privatizing education and bringing computers and software in to get rid of teachers and to education. On Thursday, there's going to be a rally in San Francisco because they're trying to bring in hundreds of robo cars that would wipe out taxi drivers and Uber Lyft drivers. Uh, and it's connected to AI and what they want to do with journalists and others. I, I think that there has to be a united front and of all workers around the introduction of AI. And that's a fundamental issue with the long term with automation of the docks. Because when Goldman Sachs says you're going to lose 300 million jobs around the world from AI, that's a major attack on working people. I mean, in Los Angeles, we're heading in the direction possibly of a general strike. Because you've got not only the writers, but you've got UPS maybe going out, the city workers, the hotel restaurant workers, Allison. So you're talking about a strike wave, which we haven't seen in our lifetime in Los Angeles. Wow. Yeah. We're trying to protect not just writers, but directors and actors. And for a long time, I think the fear of automation was how quickly will robots replace human labor? But I think... What ChatGPT has shown us is that, oh, actually, <laughs> AI will be able to do an executive's job a lot easier than it'll be able to do a writer's job. I think making this a broader struggle in the working class 
is key. You have to get these other unions and who are being affected. So they come right. as a class, as a working class saying, look, this is not just a bite to writers. It's all of us. And oh. I think that has the potential of really, besides which writers can write about the danger of AI and the threat it is, nothing's wrong with AI, except if it's only benefiting the billionaires and yeah. they're in control of it, then you're done. You know, it's times like this that I'm so grateful for organized labor and being a member of a union, because I just think of the alternative. I think that the industry that we've known for the last hundred years with would cease to exist. And it's, and I think it's partly because of the way these companies want to do business. So they're not necessarily interested in what's worked in the past. And I do think that, by the way, with technological changes, we all have to adapt, right? Like the fact that we're migrating from linear television to streaming, that's just a, the new reality. That's a new paradigm. You know, I think within three years, the number of people who have subscribed to cable in the country will be like 50% which is down from 60% just two years ago. Uh, I do think that with, with these changes, we have to adapt the pay structure and the worker protections so that we can all share in whatever prosperity there is, and there's plenty of it, and, and to be able to, for the vast majority of the people who do this work, who are working middle-class folks, to be able to make a living. That's, there's a lot on the line and it's not just writers, as you said. Theo, any parting thoughts that you'd like to share with the network as y'all move into week 10? Thank you guys so much for having me. And I appreciate your sustained coverage of this issue. I think that we certainly endeavor to get this out and your partnership and, and, and informed really with your listeners has been, we just really appreciate it. You know, we've been lifted up and supported by all of the solidarity across the board. Thank you to Chris Garlock, Harold Phillips, and all the folks at the Labor Radio Podcast Network for making that audio available. You can find links to well over 100 fellow Labor Radio and Podcast programs that are, like Labor Express, members of the network, up at the network's website, which is laborradionetwork.org. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. We need to take a brief station ID break, but when we return, we'll hear from the Teamsters about how they are gearing up for what might be one of the most significant strikes in our nation's recent history. So make sure to stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for working people by working people. We've been talking for months about the possibility of a major strike by the Teamsters at UPS uh, this coming August. We began raising this issue as far back as December of 2021 with the election of the Teamsters United Slate to leadership of the Teamsters Union. There are a host of reasons we've placed such an emphasis on this possible strike. One aspect is the size. With 340,000 members plus at locations in nearly every state and city, a strike at UPS will be a strike on a scale that we have not seen in decades. But just as important, if not perhaps more important, are the issues at stake. Full-time versus part-time jobs, jobs with contracts and benefits versus short-term gig work like driving for Uber, which UPS is now trying to utilize, mandatory overtime, long days and weeks, and schedules that make a life outside your job difficult, increased surveillance at work, poor health and safety conditions at work, two-tier wage rates where new hires are paid a fraction of what legacy employees are paid. All of these issues are at the heart of this contract fight and are also issues facing workers at workplaces well beyond UPS. 
Given the scale and size of UPS, compounded by the fact that they have an outsized role in our economy as a key link in the logistics chain, the system by which goods are moved in our economy, a contract victory for the workers at UPS can have a ripple effect for other workers outside UPS. A loss, a bad contract that strengthens UPS management's hand to impose all of these bad conditions that we previously mentioned, can likewise signal to other employers, especially non-union employers, that they can join UPS in a downward spiral for the working class. The groundwork that set the stage for the aforementioned victory for the reform forces and the Teamsters was performed by activists in TDU, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, over decades. Formed in the mid-1970s, TDU was behind the election of Ron Carey back in 1991, who led the union to a strike victory at UPS in 1997, which accomplished a variety of things, particularly turning tens of thousands of part-time jobs into full-time jobs. That is until Carey's controversial removal from office in 1998 through a dubious combination of forces, including James Hoffa Jr. and the Department of Justice corruption charges, which were eventually largely dismissed, but not before they ensured the victory of the forces of real corruption, reaction, and management-friendly unionism under Hoffa. In the decades that followed, TDU rebuilt and gradually inched closer to retaking the union leadership, especially with the near victory in the 2016 elections, and then finally that resounding victory in December of 2021. Now the TDU is leading the effort internally to organize the membership for this contract fight. That organizing has already paid off. In a pre-contract victory, UPS management has already agreed to meet one of the union's key demands, installations of air conditioning in their delivery truck fleet. The urgency of this demand was highlighted by the death of UPS driver Esteban Chavez in Pasadena last summer as a result of heat stroke, a condition that too many UPS drivers are experiencing far too often. This win is a great sign for what might be possible in a future contract and is a clear demonstration of the power of union militancy. The agreement was reached on the heels of a series of workplace actions, including work stoppages over the past couple of of months. But this is just one victory and one battle in an ongoing war. A week ago, the new president of the team, Sean O'Brien, walked out of negotiations after UPS put forward a contract proposal seemingly calculated to ensure a strike. Among other things, the UPS proposal amounts to a significant wage cut and an expansion of the tier system with the addition of new pay tiers. This is perhaps the number one issue the union is seeking to end altogether in the new contract. It's as if management was saying, we hear you that you think that the current conditions are intolerable, but instead of figuring out a way to make things better, we're going to propose a way to make things far worse. Now Teamsters leadership and especially the activists in TDU are organizing to demonstrate to the company they are ready for a fight. A key component of this is organizing practice pickets outside UPS facilities around the country. Last Wednesday, TDU held a call for Teamsters and their supporters to discuss the current situation and lay out their strike prep plan. The following audio segments are from that call. First up here is Carlos Silva from Local 572 in Los Angeles. Carlos has been a leading activist in the union, and he lays out what's at stake in this contract fight. So I have a few issues here. We got issues that affect us the same way millions of workers. I'm just gonna mention a few of these. The the two-tier wage program at UPS, this is called 22-4, which was a contract give back that lets the company pay drivers less money to do the same job. And it also creates division between the drivers. This is huge. This is a huge issue in auto, for example. Another issue is a part-time throwaway job. Everyone is familiar with the men and women who are on the street delivering our packages. But the majority of UPS 
roughly 60% of the UPS workers are part-timers. They load their own load trucks and they sort the packages that get delivered every day. Part-timers, they get three and a half hours of work guaranteed each day. And roughly, they get about $15 per hour. So we are fighting for bigger wedges and more full-time jobs. Another issue is excessive overtime. Everybody knows that UPS drivers have always worked long hours. But during the pandemic, it got crazy. The company started forcing us to work six days a week. And again, this is not just a UPS problem. This is a problem for workers nationwide. Too many workers in this country have no home life because we work too many hours. And too many workers have no control of our schedule, of our lives, because we have multiple jobs or multiple part-time jobs. It is no coincidence that you have seen more workers being active and fighting back right after the pandemic. So we saw who runs this society. We saw who really is essential. We also saw who was at home relaxing, watching Netflix, while workers are on the street working hard and sticking their necks out. Out of workers, teachers, Starbucks, Amazon, we see you brothers and sisters, and we are in this with you together. We are done being told we are essentials and then treated like we're disposable. We are worth and best believe that we are coming for it. We have won a lot of these negotiations already, including air conditioning and other protections and other protections against working in excessive heat places. By the end of this contract, one third of UPS package card needs to be equipped with AC. Plus, we have one more fans, heat shields, vents, and ice machines at our, home, at our hubs. This is a life and death situation in places like Nevada, Arizona, and in Southern California where I live. Now, we are the toughest part of the negotiations, the money. And guess what? We are coming for the money. Our union has put an economic demands on the table to UPS to end the two-tier program to win higher part-time pay, to create more full-time jobs for part-timers, to eliminate six-day punch, to eliminate personal vehicle drivers, to increase pensions, to establish additional pay holidays like MLK Day and Juneteenth. But guess what? The company came back with an insulting offer. Sean O'Brien, went public and he didn't mince words. He told UPS that if this company is, wants to negotiate a contract for 1997 conditions, they're going to get 1997 response. Today, the contract talks broke down again. 
President O'Brien has told the company to get us an offer to vote on and to do it fast. The international union leadership is prepared to lead us in a movement against givebacks and to take 340,000 UPS Teamsters to strike for our future. UPS needs to understand and needs to know that we are ready to strike if that's what it takes to win a good contract. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. Another speaker on the call was shop steward and TDU member David Thornsbury of Teamsters Local 89 in Louisville. David provided a brief history of the uh, Teamsters at UPS, starting with the groundbreaking 1997 strike through the concessionary years under Hoffa, including the notorious 2018 contract, which Hoffa imposed on the membership after they voted it down, and then the 2021 election victory for the Teamsters United slate. I started working at UPS in 1987. In 1997, uh, we went on strike for 15 days. I was very young and I was very nervous about it. But it turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me. And it was a historic victory for the labor movement. This was before the internet and social media. And every day on the picket line uh, at UPS on Bluegrass Parkway in J-Town, we literally taped up an update from TDU. That's how everyone knew uh, what was going on on our picket line. In 1999, Hoffa took office and company-friendly concessions became the way of our union at UPS, unfortunately. TDU has always had an organizing network of UPS Teamsters, and we kept organizing and building worker power from the bottom up. We started the End Part-Time Poverty at UPS campaign and made this a major issue in every contract starting in 2008. In 2013, TDU and other UPS Teamsters built a vote no movement against healthcare cuts and other contract givebacks. Fred Zuckerman helped lead this fight. We voted down the 2013 contract by 89% in my local here in Louisville. In 2016, Fred Zuckerman joined forces with TDU and ran for general president against Hoffa on the first Teamsters United slate. Over 90% of local officers opposed Fred and Teamsters United, but Fred and Teamsters United won 49% of the vote in the election, including over 60% of the vote of UPS Teamsters. The tide was obviously turning. After the election, Sean O'Brien was briefly named package division director, and he moved our union in a more aggressive United direction. But when Sean insisted on working with all Teamsters to win a good contract, Hoffer fired him and reopened the concession stand. TDU launched UPS Teamsters United and worked with Sean and Fred. The majority of UPSers voted no to reject two-tier 22-4 and other givebacks. We rejected the contract Hoffa imposed it anyway. In 2019, TDU members voted our TD convention to endorse the O'Brien-Zuckerman Teamsters United slate, which included TDU members and leaders, and we uh, campaigned like hell to elect them. Along the way, we changed the Teamsters Constitution to eliminate the two-thirds rule that Hoffa used to impose the contract that we had just rejected. We also won strike pay starting on day one of any strike, 80% 80% of UPS Teamsters voted for you, for O'Brien Zuckman Teamsters United. We won new leadership and a new direction in our union. Now that's how we got here and it took years of organizing. TDU is a 
our national network that brings UPSers and other Teamsters together to inform each other, to fight concessions, and to enforce our contract. We have built Teamsters unity from the bottom up. General President O'Brien put it this way in a statement that he sent out to all UPS Teamsters just last week. He said, the reason we are in this position to fight so hard and demand so much is because we are united. We've built a nationwide coalition among all members that includes critical support and partnering with Teamsters United, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, and other allied organizations in labor. We have come together as Teamsters, as fighters for working people, and we are determined to win together. And Sean is right. We are determined, we are united, and we are going to win. Thank you for your time. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. Last Wednesday's TDU call included a host of Teamsters at UPS facilities around the country talking about how they are preparing for a possible strike in August. How's it going, everybody? I'm Corey Levesque, a steward out of Teamsters Local 251 in Rhode Island. I'm also on the TDU steering committee. Um, so we held our, our first practice picket yesterday. We intend on doing some more as well. And this is just to show the company that we're not afraid to be out there walking the street if we have to, if it can't get done at the negotiating table. You know, the company sees everything that we do, whether it be a parking lot rally or a practice picket, and they take notice and they feel that fear that we're imposing on them by showing them that we're not afraid. Um, you know, we're trying to hit this company from all different angles and put as much pressure on them as we can. And, you know, I come from a local that used to be management friendly um, until the team, the, until uh, the 251 United Action Slate took office in 2014. And that was in large part due to TDU, you know, a TDU helped our slate get elected and, you know, gave us the education and skills to take to the shop floor to build a militant local. And I hope to see a lot more militant locals performing practice pickets. Um, if you're not from a militant local, I hope to see them, you know, initiating it on their own as well. Um, you know, talk to your UPS drivers, uh, talk to UPS workers. We're fighting for part-timers just as much. They have some of the hardest jobs at UPS. And yet they're the ones that get, to be frank, the most. So talk to your UPS workers, see how you could help them if you're from a different union. And uh, thank you for joining us in this fight. I appreciate my brother, Corey. You know, I'm inspired by the great work that they're doing out there in 251 and my brothers and sisters all across the country. As Sister Boston mentioned, my name is Antoine Andrews. I'm a proud Teamster of Local 804, proud TDU member shop steward, union organizer, and activist. So there's been a lot of great things happening as we have been seeing all across the country and within my local. We kicked off on August 1st last year. And what we have been doing is what I call the quadruple M, maintaining, mobilizing, maintaining the membership and mobilizing the members and keeping that, keeping that momentum going. We have been taking off what parking lot meetings since then. We have been doing rallies. We have been having uh, cap training, um, cap, captain training meetings. And next week we're gonna have our practice picketing. And this is in which I'm excited about. We have been, one thing you know I wanna really touch about, touch on is the safety, not surveillance. We had that rally last year. And as you all know, we have been successful because we're getting ACs in a package cost. So this is just an example of when we fight, we win. We can't stop this. And I thank TDU for giving us the tools that we need 
to fight this company. Brothers and sisters, we have to stand up against injustice. We have to stand up against unfair labor practices. And in the words of Martin Luther King, injustice anywhere is in injustice everywhere. So an injury to one is an injury to all. And the only way we're going to fight this and only way we're going to win is to stand united as one, brothers and sisters. And this is something that I'm looking forward to, the victory. Thank you. So I'm Jenny. I'm a shop steward out of Local 396 in Los Angeles. I am a part-timer on the preload shift. Um, and yeah, I'm going to talk about organizing part-timers, uh, which has been, from what I understand, a pretty contentious issue in the Teamsters. I remember uh, a few months ago, one of the drivers in my building said, part-timers aren't real Teamsters because they don't vote, um, which I guess was historically true, but has been seen that this contract campaign, part-timers have voted uh, in our local, even at one point, uh, they voted even more than the full-timers, so we showed him. But yeah, so part-time, I mean, it's complicated because part-time jobs can be bad for the labor movement. Um, of course, we want more full-time jobs. Uh, there's high turnover. A lot of people see it as it'll be like their first job or, or it'll be like a whatever job. Um, a lot of my coworkers say like, I don't care. I don't need this job, right? Uh, so it's not always a career, so it makes it harder to organize and fight. Um, but as it is right now, as Carlos said, UPS part-timers are the largest proportion of workers. Uh, I believe it's 60% of the workforce. Uh, and it's also the largest per, uh, percentage of women um, because there's more women part-timers than there are drivers. Uh, a lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that women have a lot of more childcare responsibilities. So they're not able to take on the job of full-time, uh, which everyone knows full-time UPS means like 60 hours a week. So um yeah, the issue is there. Like, why why do women have to take a pay cut because they're part timers? Right. And that's what we're fighting for in this contract fight. Um, but yeah, historically, I mean, especially the last uh, few contracts, uh, part time part timers have really gotten the the weak end of the deal for our previous contracts. Um, I their pay has gone down like uh, in comparison to the minimum wage to the point that right now in L.A., we make we just make minimum wage. We don't make any more. Um, even though we're a union job. Um, we do have the full benefits, which is a huge uh, advantage, obviously, and why a lot of people stay. Um, but no matter what, uh, part-timers need to be included in the union. They need to be uh, organized uh, and paid attention to. And it turns out uh, the people who are really good at organizing part-timers are uh, TDU part-timers. Um, so uh, it been super helpful to have like these TDU webinars um, and have TDU send supplies to people to, to uh, participate in all of the contract campaign activities. So for example, the August 1st kickoff, MLK Day, contract unity pledge, um, strike, strike vote authorization, and now getting to the practice picket. Um, and we've seen that nationwide, that there's a network of part-timers who are doing this work and really engaging part-timers through this uh, contract campaign. So that's been, I mean, I've seen it in my building. Uh, we've seen people are super ready to strike if we have to. Um, and it's because we've been doing all this activity and showing people that we, if we have to strike for what we deserve, it'll be worth it because uh, part-timers are important too. Um, and their activity in the union is valued. And I know our management knows that and UPS uh, is getting put to the test because, um, yeah, like I said, the membership and even the part-timers are ready to vote and ready to uh, fight for what we deserve uh, in this contract fight. You're listening to Labor Express Radio. It's called Only Labor News and Current Affairs Radio Program. 
Teamsters at UPS were not the only ones who spoke on the call. As I mentioned earlier in the program, a successful strike at UPS or even a very strong contract win could have ripple effects across the country, especially in the logistics industry. UPS has the largest market share in the package delivery business. Their closest competitor is the non-union FedEx. After the 1997 strike victory, many FedEx workers communicated an interest in forming a union. Though that didn't materialize at the time, a victory this year could reignite that interest. Following FedEx, the next largest competitor is the postal system, where union workers would benefit greatly by not having their working conditions undermined by uh, the pressure from an industry competitor. The last major UPS competitor is none other than Amazon, the rising star in logistics and the worst working conditions in the industry. But where workers are winning organizing victory after organizing victory as of late, the efforts at Amazon could get a big boost from a very public victory at UPS. One of those on the call was Antonio Rosario, a Teamsters organizer at Amazon and a member of the TDU out of New York City. Workers are rising up, Starbucks workers, Chipotle worker, Trader Joe workers. But yeah, Amazon is the monster, right? The elephant in the room. Amazon is the biggest, most powerful corporation. They're driving down industry standards, standards that our teams, the brothers and sisters have fought for for decades. So we have to realize as UPS workers, our, our struggle with those Amazon workers is the same. We're all in the logistics industry. They do the same work that we do, and we can't continue to allow Amazon to drive down those standards and affect all of us. So we have to lift our brothers and sisters at Amazon up. It's the same struggle, same fight, and we're all in. Um, but, you know, organizing Amazon is a huge undertaking. They have over a million workers. They have just doubled inside, tripled inside. That It's an existential threat. The, the growth is just ridiculous. And... Um, you know, we're not selling them the union. We're not as Teamsters here to save the day. But you know what? We're going to help them in their fight. We're going to make sure that we do whatever we can to help them, make sure that this fight is their fight, their own fight. But we can do, you know, we can give them the tools. We can give them the help. We can show solidarity. We can give them the organizing skills that they need to build their, their committees and to build strength. This is a massive undertaking. Even if we had a thousand staff organizers, we could not do this. To organize Amazon, I mean, we all know that there's a war. And I say this all the time when I'm speaking, there's a war on the working class. And we're not going to win without building an army of organizers. And that's what we're doing, building an army of or volunteer organizers that are workers that have dealt, that can speak worker to worker, one on one, talking about the things that we've dealt with in our industry, same same issues that we're all having because we're all in the same industry. And who's better to, to, to organize the workers than the workers in the same industry? And, you know, to take on the boss and win, we know how to take on the boss and win. So we're going to show them how to do that. Uh, the contract ca campaign is going to be a big part of it. Us winning big is going to help everyone win big. And we got to get to work on our communities, organizations, and labor-friendly politicians and get them to get off their, you know, get these politicians to help us and make sure that they're working in our favor, pushing legislation that's going to help us get across the finish line. But one thing that I've learned over my years at TDU is if it wasn't for TDU, I would not be the organizer I am today because with TDU, I was able to learn a lot of the skills that I have gotten over the years. And I appreciate everything they've done. And with the help of TDU, we're going to continue to do this kind of work. And I want to thank everybody here for listening. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. The TDU call also featured members of other unions. The other contract fight we've been watching closely here on Labor Express Radio is the situation with the UAW at the big three automakers. 
The uh, situation at UAW closely parallels that of the Teamsters. Reformers won the first direct elections for union leadership since the 1950s last March. Like Teamsters United, the UAWD, Unite All Workers for Democracy, has promised to fight back against the years of concessionary contracts. Chicago's own Scott Holderson, former UAW Local 551 vice president and leader within the UAWD, spoke on the call about their own contract fight, but was primarily on the call to thank TDU for their aid and mentorship to the reform movement in the UAW. Uh, we've uh, scored a major victory in the, in the UAW. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do, though. Um, so I, I wanted to come on here mostly to thank you. Uh, because UAWD uh, has modeled ourselves after TDU. Uh, you know, we looked around and said, we, we need to reform this union. Who's done this before? And, uh, you, and T, TDU has been at it for uh, decades. And we just got started as a scrappy group of uh, auto workers uh, back in 2019, trying to fight the corruption that had infected our union. And uh, you know, you guys set the standard for how to fight back uh, against the corrupt union. And uh, you also created a model for us. And I just want to thank you so much. Um, and, you know, I, I want to say that, uh, you know, I've been studying uh, TDU to help build UAWD. And to do that, I've, I've actually attended the last two TDU conventions and saw how you structured yourself, saw how you taught the rank and file. And uh, we are doing our best, our damnedest to uh, uh, model ourselves after what you're doing. Uh, so, you know, thank you for having that example. Thank, thank you for being a mentor to us. We're really excited about supporting uh, UPS workers in their contract fight. Uh, and we're learning how to uh, put on a contract fight by what you all are doing. Uh, so, for instance, today, my, my uh, co-chair from uh, UAWD, uh, Chris Budnick, attended a, a uh, practice picket in Louisville, and uh, he's going to bring a report back to me and, and, and our uh, staff organizers, and we're going to take that uh, message out to our, our membership in UAWD and build this contract campaign for auto workers, because you may have heard uh, that uh, the big three auto workers have been rolling in dough, and uh, they're about to pay back what they uh, stole from us. Uh, and I do mean stole because you know they were buying our vice presidents uh, to get better contracts. Uh, that's that's a proven fact, and uh, now it's our time to get that back. So thank you so much, and I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to to come on here and uh, you know pay my gratitude and respect to you all. Just a heads up to listeners, I hope to have a more detailed update on the situation with the UAW from Scott Holderson on an upcoming episode of Labor Express Radio, so be on the lookout for that. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. I wrap up our audio from last Wednesday's TDU call with the following message by a key member of the community coalition that TDU has built as part of their strike preparations. Jobs with Justice, the leading community labor coalition in the country, is playing its own role in preparing for a possible strike at both UPS and the big three automakers, including the launching of a new labor solidarity website, which could become a portal for union members and non-union workers alike to get involved in the labor solidarity movement. Here is Nafisa Ula, National Organizing Director of Jobs with Justice. What is 
some great news on our end is that today, just today, we launched this website that we're calling the Solidarity Hub. Um, it's great because like folks have mentioned uh, on the call, this is a big ass fight. Like this is a critically important, huge fight, but it's not the only one. It's not the only one happening right now. And it's not the only one this year. This year, over a million private sector workers are in bargaining. And it's a continuation of maybe two and a half years of continuous strike activity across the country. And it's critically important that someone starts telling the story that workers aren't just striking against their employer, which they are. Their UPS and, and Tomei can do a lot better than what they're doing. But it's also about the overall economic system that we are functioning in. And we want to help tell that story. And this is the beginning of that, is to have this one hub where folks can plug in if you're not a union member or if you're not a union member of the particular fight that's hot right now. So you have a place to go and you're able to link up with what, where there are actions locally. You can sign up for other updates or you can see if there's other, there are other fights in your area that you want to get plugged into. So thank you for letting us support you and have this fight. We're with you all the way to the end, as far as we need to go, and definitely on the picket lines. Thank you so much for having us, and keep kicking butt. The address for that website is thesolidarityhub.org. So all one word, thesolidarityhub.org. You can also find a link uh, to that link on our Facebook page up at uh, laborexpress.org. You can always check out more about what we talk about here on Labor Express by checking out our Facebook page at laborexpress.org. Well, that's all for tonight's episode. Labor Express is a nonprofit 51 c 3 member of IBW Local 1220. The views expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBEW. Labor Express is a proxy of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the will capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, where people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. <laughs> 